0: The Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We have been working our way through the New Testament book, Second Timothy, and today we are in the second chapter, verses 24 to 26. As I have mentioned before, the Apostle Paul is training his protege, Timothy, who is the pastor of the most important of churches in the first century, and the way that the gospel should be spread. These lessons were not just for young Timothy, though, but for us, our teachers, and our pastors. This lesson is a good example of that kind of teaching. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15, following a short time of fellowship. Then our teacher, Doug Brady, digs deeply into the scriptures, as you will hear in this lesson today. We invite visitors to our class located in the LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of our new worship center building. We invite you to visit with us if you are in the area. Well, I see that Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend. Doug Brady.
1: Let's talk for just a minute about where we are in 2 Timothy, because I think it's important for us to realize Timothy has been appointed pastor of what church?
0: Corinthians.
1: Corinthians is what my uh, favorite Amalekite suggests. Is that correct? Yes. Oh, uh, you mean Ephesus? Ephesus. Yes, Ephesus. You know, you need to listen to your wife before you answer instead of after you answer.
2: She was slow.
1: Oh, well, okay. Uh, I've never counted her as slow, but uh, be that as it may, he was the pastor at Ephesus. And yet, things were starting to stress in him. He was getting opposition from without and opposition from within. And something called apostasy was moving into that church. And Paul talked about a couple of heretics there who said, Jesus has already come back. You know, if you really believed that today, how terrible a shape you would be in. Now, Paul is telling Timothy that you need to understand who's in control. You can't lose heart. You can't give up. And in fact, he gave him some examples of that. He said, does the soldier give up? No, he fights to the end. Does the athlete who competes in a world-class level, does he ever give up? No, he competes to the end. Then he talked about the farmer who has to work hard hoping that the crop will come in. And then he talked about vessels and he talked about himself. And today he's going to talk about the last example that he's going to give of how you have to keep fighting. You have to keep on. You have to keep trusting, no matter how widespread the opposition is or how difficult the persecution becomes. You can't quit. You remember, he told him, You don't have the, God didn't give you the spirit of fear. He gave you the spirit of power and of love and of self control. That's what you've got to do. So, his last illustration here. To provide us motivation is going to have to be about a faithful servant. Now, let's just talk about a slave for a minute. Can a slave say, you know what, I've had enough of this, I think I'll just quit. No, you can't do that. Now, let's talk about a summary outline here of these three verses we're going to look at this morning. The first part is the call to servanthood. The second verse is going to talk about God's goals for his servant. I like the last one the most, because that's God's plan to use his servants to thwart the plans of the enemy. You know, I don't like to get in a fight where I can't shoot back, if you know what I mean. And God wants us to respond to the enemy in certain ways. But before we get into this passage, let's ask God to bless the study. Dear Father, I thank you for the opportunity to have a free and open Bible. And I thank you so much to have a church That allows us to come here and meet and share what's in your word. Father, you know that this church is a target of the wicked one. And he wants to do everything he can to destroy it. And he is going to bring opposition both from without and within. I pray that you protect this church. That you keep her pure in her doctrinal understanding. And I pray, Father that you bring about her people to understand that they are to be watchmen on the walls. And their job is to warn of oncoming danger. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to recognize this responsibility. Now, Father, as we look at this passage about the divine servant, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be the teacher today and that he will work in our hearts and show us what you want us to see. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Starting in verse 24 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, be able to teach, and patient when wronged." Well, we're going to need to break this down because I think it's very important to understand. Now, the New American Standard translates that word bondservant. Does the new King James do the same thing, bond servant? I think the King James does too. Now, those, that translation on behalf of all of those people is a compromise. It sounds better to translate it that way than what it really means, because this word in the Greek is doulos, and it means slave. Now, in our country, slavery is kind of a dirty word, and well, it should be in the respects that our history has uh, unfortunately forced to deal with it. But the fact is, we're talking about a different kind of slavery here. In the slavery in the history of our nation, one human being thought he had the right to own another human being. This type of slavery is totally different. The type of slavery we're looking at here is the fact that every human being is a slave you say oh no not me you say no not me you're wrong you are but the difference in this kind of slavery is you get to choose who your master will be you get to choose you need to make that choice wisely and that is the concept Paul is trying to get across and we need to see it now some of you say Doug I've never heard that before I'm just not sure I can accept that. I'm not sure the Bible teaches that. Well, you know who's wrong? The one who hasn't told you that up to now. That's the one who's wrong. Let's look in Romans. Maybe one of the greatest theological treatises that's ever been written. It certainly was written by the greatest theologian to ever live. You have a question? I wrote
2: years ago that a bond slave, someone that was free. They took their term, then they decided to stay under and they had their ears pierced and they were choosing to be the servant. So they were choosing, it's a, it's a different kind of slave.
1: But doulos is the lowest type of slave. That's why they compromised by translating it that way. That's just not what doulos means. Dulos means an absolute slave. One that has no choice. A Greco-Roman slave. And if K. Arthur taught that, I'm afraid, as I look at this, we would agree that this is the lowest level. Andy Woods would agree this is at the lowest level. And I can name you four or five others that I studied to make certain that what I'm saying is accurate. Because every translation is translating it. Why do they translate it bondservant then? Because, you see, it's not as alarming. We're going to find next week a word uh, that... Is not translated correct by any of our Bibles. And, and you're going to find this happens. But let's look at this. Is it really that? Starting in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we are also, we also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now notice that, no longer be slaves to sin. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death Or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God. That though you were slaves of sin. You have become obedient from the heart. To the form of teaching to which you were committed. And you have been freed from sin. And you became slaves of righteousness. So we are slaves. We can choose who owns us. Sin and its originator. Are the Lord, our creator, and the freedom giver. But we are slaves. We have a master. And we're to be obedient to that master. And our master is a very merciful master. A very kind and generous master. But we need to recognize that. Well now, Paul is saying this. Does he say that about himself? Well, if you look in almost every passage, if you start the book of Romans... Look what it says, Paul, and here again it says bondservant, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called it as an apostle to set apart for the work of the gospel of God. When he wrote to the Philippians, do you know who was writing, helping him write that book? Timothy. And so he wrote Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who were in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons when he wrote to the pastor of the churches of Crete, that is Titus, Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Most of the remainder of Paul's epistles contain this same identification. So why does Paul use this model, slavery, as an illustration? Is a slave allowed to quit and give up? No. Can they decide that They just finished being a slave and they're now going to do something else. No. And that's the message he's trying to get across to Timothy. You are the master's slave. You were bought from the slave market of sin and you can't quit. Now, the next thing he says in this passage about being a, a bond servant or a slave is God's slave must not be quarrelsome. Now, when I hear quarrelsome... I think of, say, a couple of kids in the family who are messing with each other in the back seat of the car on a long car trip. You know, something that's really not that big of a deal, being quarrelsome, you know. That, uh, two girls unhappy in high school over the guy who's talking to one and not to the other. Or something else like that. But that's not what this word means. This word, makomai, means to fight. It talks about armed combat or engaged in hand-to-hand struggle. This is a serious word. Quarrelsome, I think, is a a soft translation. It should be, we must not be combative. Maybe that's the best way to say it because this is a military term. Paul does not want Timothy to be pugnacious or belligerent when facing the opposition, whether the opposition is from unbelievers or believers. And yet, he is not to be intimidated or fearful of either of those. You don't hear Paul saying, well, some of these people, Timothy, they have a good point. No, he's not saying that. But he's saying, I don't want you to be combative with them. You remember what we talked about in 2 Timothy 1, 7. Love and discipline are are part of that. And so instead, he says, he wants us to be kind to all. Now... Do most human beings try to be kind from time to time? Kind to whom? Aha, people that like them, people who are kind to them. Kindness seems to be returned. But to everyone, no. We tend to think that kindness is something that needs to be earned or deserved. That's not what God's saying here. Paul instead says, Timothy... To everyone you come in contact with, you need to be kind. The word kind, we all, I think, understand. It's not one of those words that's, or, or statements or admonitions that's hard to understand. It's just hard to do. Julie would tell you, if she was being honest, and usually she's dreadfully honest, that my most difficult time being kind is when I'm in the car, and uh, yes, she's nodding, and I have a series of names that I use for those people who don't know how to drive, especially when they don't know how to drive because they've got, they're texting or they've got a phone to their ear. Now, wait, you're not going to add to this, are you? Go easy.
0: You've got to remember where you are.
1: Now. That <laughs> I don't text when I drive. Now, my car has the phone through it, so I don't have to be holding up a phone so I can only drive with one hand and therefore drive slow. Now, we need to understand that kindness is a mark of a believer. Uh, You know, if somebody was asking you, well, how kind are you? What would you say? On a scale of 1 to 10. But I want to look at this next word. Be kind to all, able to teach. Now, we've talked about, I mean, everybody understands what this word means, right? Actually, that's three words in English, one word in the Greek. I counted it up uh, this week. In the English New Testament, it uses the word teach 36 times. This word here in the Greek is didaktikos, didaktikos. It is only used twice in the New Testament, only twice. Well... What's the difference between the other things, other words translated to teach, which are forms of this word, but not this word. This is the highest form of this word. This is more of a superlative type form of this word from an English description. And it means suitable for or skillful in teaching. This is talking about top level teachers. Now, he's telling Timothy he needs to be able to do that. Can you be this kind of teacher without training? Unlikely. Can you be this kind of teacher without studying and preparation? No. Absolutely not. Well, where else does he use this word in the New Testament? Where else? Well, let me tell you. It's in 1st Timothy. 1st Timothy chapter 3 starting in verse 2. An overseer then. Now we have to stop there. An overseer. What is an overseer? What is he talking about? He's talking about the church. Who is the overseer? Actually, from the New Testament perspective, it is an elder. And in, in the first century church, they weren't set up with a pastor and deacons and congregation. They were set up with elders deacons, in a congregation. They might have, when you read about Paul's first missionary journey, and he's in the church of Antioch, there was like five elders. One or two or three of them would act as pastors of the church, and then they decided to ta- send two of those elders, Paul and Barnabas, on a missionary journey, and they left. Left them with three elders. But obviously, in any church, a pastor would be, an elder. Now, you don't have a pastor who's not an elder. It's saying this elder then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, that always causes problems. Actually, (laughs) that's what some people want to think, but they are in error. uh, Because the same requirement here is assigned to deacons of one wife. And I've studied this very carefully because I wanted to know the answer to that question. And the wording is one wife forever. So that means if you've had more than one wife or you don't have a wife, you're not qualified to be a pastor or a deacon.
2: And I am a deacon and I am the husband of one wife at a time.
1: (laughs) Well... I'm the husband of two wives, and that's why I resigned the deaconate, because my current wife was not my first wife. Question. He didn't have a wife. You're right. No, if he is called to be an elder, but he cannot be the husband of more than one wife. Now, that's what the Greek says. I've searched it because I wanted to know for me. What could I
0: do? Uh, this is kind of a side thing. I thought to be a Pharisee, you had to have a wife. Paul was a
1: Pharisee. At a certain age, but not while you were still a student, in the, and he was a student in Gamaliel School. I've been told by people in this church that I'm wrong and that I have to study and find out what I think it says, and I'm afraid that's what it says. And is my understanding of it, but that's not what we're here to get to. So I shouldn't have even brought that up probably. Husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's that same word, kotos or kitos. The elder should be skillful in teaching. Now that brings up a very interesting point. If you go to church and you say, well, this... Pastor, he's not very good in the pulpit, but he's a great pastor and he's a shepherd and he does all these things. What would that say? What does this say? There are some people who said, if you look at these things as being a disqualification, that makes you a second class person in the church, right? No, it means you're a person with a different calling. You know, when I had to face that, Lord, you mean I can't be a deacon ever again? There's not something I can do. Doug, I called you to be a teacher, not a deacon. And I think i was a whole much better teacher when I wasn't a deacon than when I was. Because I knew, I didn't know what was going on.
0: What if your ex-wife dies?
1: Well, that's tough to say. All I can say is he's the husband of one wife. Now, maybe if he became an elder and then his wife died, that might be different. But... The important thing is this concept of the teacher, a skillful person or skilled in teaching and able to, this is what he's saying. Now, is he just saying this to Timothy? No. Well, wait a second. Does that mean anybody can become a skillful teacher? Well, anybody can if God provides them the gift and they learn to use the gift. I would say, if we were, if I was speculating, how many people? Let's say there's 120 people in the class this morning, 140, something like that. How many people you think in this class, for certain, knows what their spiritual gift is? Maybe 50, maybe 40. As I talked and, and have talked to some other people, I put a great deal of faith in what Andy Wood says. He's a brilliant scholar. He's part of the pre-tribulation research group. And he says that most Christians, in his opinion, have more than one spiritual gift. Well, if that's true, then a whole bunch of us don't know. We say, well, I know I have this gift. Yeah, but maybe you have another one. Sometimes we don't want to think about what our other gift is. Why? Because we don't want to be exercising it. But the fact is... He can bring this about. Now, the one final thing he says about these slaves that he wants us to be, his slave, the different things he wants. The last thing is patient. Now, some of us say, God, give me patience and give it to me quickly. I want you to think about this. Is it easy to be patient? Well, let's talk about with people. Is it easy for me to be patient with Aubrey? Oh, yes is it as easy for me to be patient with Julie? But I have much easier time being patient with Julie than I do with Don.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's understandable.
1: You knew that was coming, I'm sure. But it's, what is the point there? We have an easier time being patient with people who we love, or who at least we're friends with, or that we have a good feeling for or thought of. But... Is that what it says? No, you have to be patient with the people who have wronged you. Well, Lord, wait a second. Don't you understand those are the most difficult people to be patient with? He says, yes, I do. Now, you think about this. The people in our class, they know you all are up to snuff on so many things. And you know the wickedness going on in our nation. And God is still patient. Is he the one being wronged? Yes, he is. And yet, we're saying, stop being patient. Do something. We need to show everybody who and what you are, God. Just like Mary at the feast of, uh, in Cana said, Jesus, show them who you are. Vindicate me. He says, woman, it's not my time. I will. Not now. He ran
0: out of patience with Solomon and Gomorrah.
1: He did. But how long did he let it go? Yes. And he wanted to make a clear statement in the scripture. I can't put up with that kind of thing. So how long is he going to put up with that kind of thing in our nation? You tell me. I don't know. What? I mean. Can you believe that he made his people stay as slaves in Egypt for 400 years just so the sins of the Canaanites could become full of the Amorites? I, I
2: find that in my life people that have really wronged me, that I get really angry with. And I go home and I separate myself from them and I pray about it and pray about it and I go back and be a different person and be more gracious.
1: They see Christ in me then. That's right. That's one of the whole points. Because being patient with the ones who have wronged you is not. And, and this word means to be patient of ills and wrongs and forbearing. And you remember, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's set out in Galatians five twenty two and 23. Now, patience takes self-control, Right? What did Paul tell Timothy? I haven't given you the spirit of fear, power, love, and self-control. Self-control. So, what are his intentions for his servants? That's the next verse in chapter 2, verse 25. And with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now, first thing. This word gentleness, I don't like that translation. What does it say in the King James or the New King James? Meekness. I think meekness is a better word. Why? Because of the etymology of that word, how it came into being. Do you know what meekness means? Meekness means power under control. Now, I want you to think about how many of you have ever seen the movie The Black Stallion? Raise your hand. I can't believe some of you haven't seen that movie. Now this horse that is in that movie is magnificently beautiful and power. I mean, just rippling with muscles and at the start of the movie, it's just wild and no one can control it and it's on a ship and there's a shipwreck and the horse and little boy get marooned on a desert island and they're there together. Pretty soon a friendship starts to form and then the boy gets where he can ride the horse. And pretty soon that horse has been tamed for that boy and the two of them are like one as they ride and he directs that horse. Now, did that horse lose any of his power or strength? No, but it's now under the control of that boy. He goes this way if the boy pulls that way, he goes this way if the boy pulls the other way. He stops when the boy wants to stop and he starts when the boy wants to start. That's meekness, power under control. What is the perfect example of that? Jesus on the cross. Did he, when he was up there and saying his last words, did he say, you just wait till I come back the second time? (laughs) No, he didn't say that, did he? Did he say, ah, think about the lake of fire, guys. You're going to roast a lie. No, didn't say anything like that. Jesus was power under control when he was there on the cross. Now, meekness correcting those who are in opposition. Let's remind ourselves we need to understand who are the ones in opposition here because it's going to be important in a minute. Is it unbelievers? Is it believers? Or is it both? Persecutions coming. I mean, the ones in opposition to Paul, right where they've got him in the dungeon, are those believers? No, not at least not till Paul gets a hold of them. But what is he saying is coming in the church? Apostasy. And that comes from within the church. Now, there are people in the church who are unbelievers. But there are also people in the church who are believers and they're misguided or carnal. And they allow this to happen. And so we're seeing opposition from both sides. And he's saying, when you meet this opposition, you must be meek. If, perhaps, what will result from that? If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now it's important here to understand. Did he say repentance leading to salvation? I think it's important for us to stop here and to see something that is important in understanding where we're going here uh, about repentance. We've seen opposition. We've seen correcting, which means carries the idea of training or bringing to maturity. But what does repentance mean? In our society, repentance is always tied to one word. What's that one word? Sin. Does repentance, the word itself, have anything to do with sin? Answer is no, it does not. Now, what does it mean? This word, repentance, and we're going to come back to knowledge in a second, I want us to look at repentance first. It's meta metanoeo. metanoeo, that's two words. Meta means kind of to change or to alter. Where noeo means to think or understand. So what should we understand metanoeo to mean? A change of mind. Okay? So what is repentance? A changing of your mind. Now, this brings up an important question. Is repentance necessary for salvation? There are other peoples who will say, no, it is not. They're wrong? They're wrong. All right, well, we'll get to that in just a second. And I think that's a, an Amalekite way of thinking. But I'm gonna tell you, repentance is repentance necessary for salvation? Yes or no, depending on the person. Yes, ma'am. No. Uh Uh-huh. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Same thing that Peter preached in chapter 2 of Acts. Repent and be saved. Now, let's talk about this because this is important in the Christian church to understand. And that's why we want to have a meaning here. You notice Peter said, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Now, what had these people done 53 days before? Crucified the Messiah. Did they recognize him as the Messiah? Did they, in fact, reject him as the Messiah? Now, if repentance means changing your mind, can you be saved without changing your mind if you thought God doesn't exist? You can't be saved if you think God doesn't exist. Can you be saved if you believe Jesus is not the Son of God or really never existed? No. Can you be saved if you say, well, there's no really such thing as sin? No. Can you be saved if you think, if you don't believe Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin? Or can you be saved if you think, well, everybody else sins, but I don't? No, you can't. Can you be saved if you think, well, it all depends on how good I am? No. If you think any of those things, you have to change your mind to be saved. But what if you don't think those things? Now, here's, I think, a test. First thing of the question is, is repentance necessary for salvation if you don't have those preconceived ideas that I just talked about? Well, here's the way to tell. Wouldn't somebody like John or Paul... No, they wouldn't lie about it, would they? Well, what did John say about salvation? He said, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed on his name. I don't see the word repentance in there one time. Would John lie about that when he's dealing with people? That verse is used in almost every scriptural presentation. Now, we're coming. You got to give me a chance to finish. Give me a chance to finish. Another statement by John. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have have eternal life. he say anything about repentance? Ha! He does. Where does he say you have to change your mind? Oh, you have to believe. No, you weren't. Believe in who? Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the same thing would be true by what Paul said in Acts. It's in Acts 16. He's talking to the Philippine jailer. Didn't reject Jesus as Messiah. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And he called for lights, and they rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after being, having been brought out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Oh, no, way, he didn't say that, did he? Now, let's finish first. I want you to look at this verse again. Where... Does repentance come from? It
2: doesn't list all the things you need to do to be saved in that one sentence. But are there more? Do you have to be baptized? You have to.
1: You think you have to be baptized to be saved?
2: Yes. It says you do have to do these things, and we have to obey the commandments. If you don't obey the commandments, you're not going to be saved.
1: Okay. Now, wait a second. If you don't obey the commandments, you're not going to be saved. That's impossible. No, I, I don't think that's correct. You see, what does it say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? For by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Now, look at this verse again. With gentleness, correcting those in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Where does the repentance come from? The Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit, from God. Yes, God. All three parts grants repent. Can you do that before you're saved? No. Repentance comes after, when it comes to sin. You have to change your mind before. What were you? A slave to sin. Could you stop sinning? Even if you tried real hard? No. But once you're saved, you now have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And you now have a source of power you didn't have before. And God can change minds. Julie.
2: You know how we debated this for years and you finally got me because the way I see it...
1: Amazing. <laughs>
2: the way I Careful. see it now is that when you become, you believe in Christ, you get the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit then convicts you of your sins, and you repent. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually the outcome of salvation.
1: The conviction of sin comes from whom?
2: The Holy Spirit.
1: Right. That you're a sinner,
2: and what your sins are, until you are a believer, and you have that gift of the Holy Spirit, you are in, unable to recognize sin as, a, as
1: without... Something separating you from God. Now, here's the important thing. If we think that obedience is what brings us salvation, will anybody really ever measure up to God's standard of obedience? Even when you have the Holy Spirit, will you be able to measure up to God? If Jesus didn't pay the penalty for you, you are going to hell. You cannot live good enough. Even with the Holy Spirit residing in you, you still have the old sin nature. I mean, is there anybody in here who's lived a perfect life after you were saved? If you're raising your hand, you're lying. Even Paul, even
2: Paul kept saying that
1: Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this sin and death? Yes. Just, just a point, uh, Jerry, no, uh, Mother, I think it was on the was talking about believe. Jesus Christ and be baptized. Yep. So that, can you address that? Yes, I can. He was talking about bringing them into the kingdom. That's the belief, the, the repentance, changing your mind about Jesus, is the first step. What does God want us to do after we see Jesus as our Savior? Proclaim it to the rest of the world. How do we do that? Baptize. There's some
0: denominations that say you've
2: got to do both. His audience.
1: And that's important to recognize. And you have to understand salvation alone, by Christ alone, by faith alone, in God's word alone, that's it. It's nothing that we do ourselves. So we can never say, oh no, I earned this. Yes, ma'am.
2: Okay. There is no more
1: sacrifice if we willingly sin there's no more sacrifice there is no more sacrifice now what was the people that the book of hebrews was addressed to do you know it was jewish people who were facing persecution and they were saying you know what i wasn't persecuted like this when i was a jew when i was believed in the jewish faith just when i became a christian i'm going back to judaism right And our pastor taught us a whole series on that. What that is in effect saying is, you think you can go back to Judaism and you think you can get a sacrifice that'll change that? No, you can't. The sacrifice of Jesus lasts forever, covers every sin. There is no sin that a person can commit that is not covered by Jesus' sacrifice unless you choose to refuse to, you reject Him. And say, I'm not believing. Blaspheming. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, though, is in effect saying no to him when he is wooing you to receive his son or receive the Son of God as your Savior. That's the blasphemy. We can't even, we can't even take pride of, okay, I came to a point in my life where I'm going to see God. No, he called it, it, It's all God and none us. And that's where salvation comes in. But also, we're talking about people who are saved and who are carnal and have the wrong idea. And we need to change their mind. If you think, for example, that I have to live good or God will take my salvation away, we've got to get... We have to ask God and oppose that position so that we can get God to change their mind, to give them a repentant heart on that issue. If people think... That we should be all about preparing for God's kingdom right now. And that we are responsible for building the kingdom and bringing it in. We've got to have repentance. Because you're not responsible for the kingdom. You're responsible for discipling human beings. That's what he said. As the Father sends me, so send I you. To seek and save those who are lost. And so we look at that and we begin to see now that we are... Granted in the subjunctive, and that's in the subjunctive case. What does subjunctive mean? I said case, mood, excuse me. What does subjunctive mean? Maybe, perhaps God will grant them. Paul's making it clear. You can oppose them in meekness, and they may not repent. They may not change. But maybe God will grant them repentance to change their mind and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And you can say the knowledge of the truth of the scriptures. And that's what I think is so important to see. Now, let's go to verse 26. In the brief time we've got left, we want to look at this and it says, Now, remember, this was God's plan for his servants to interfere with Satan. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What is he saying here? It's hard to understand sometimes when you have one Greek word and you translate it in six English words. The Greek word ananefo ananefo is translated, they may come to their senses. One word. It means to return to soberness or to regain your senses. This verb is also in the subjunctive mood. We as a servant's are not working toward a certainty in the response of unbelievers, but a possibility that they may be freed. What is he saying has happened to these people? They have been entrapped. Entrapped by who? By Satan. And why are they doing the things they're doing? What does it say? Having been held captive by him to do his will. Now that changes some things on the way some of us should think. There's someone who I always tend to speak of in a rather negative light in this class. You know her name. It will just say Nancy. (laughs) Does Nancy do things that are wrong, wicked and evil? But who is causing her to do those? Because she has been entrapped by him. That means should we hate Nancy? Should we hate Satan? Yes. I think we should. So you say, no, we shouldn't hate anybody. No. What Satan is and what he stands for, he is a liar. He is a killer. He is a destroyer. He is wickedness incarnate. And we should hate that. And that's what he's doing. But these people who are doing his bidding have been entrapped. What they don't need is hatred or up, they need mercy. Does God want to show them mercy? Yes. Yeah. Does He need somebody to share His love and forgiveness with them? Does He? Yeah. Even Nancy? Yeah. Gary? So, back to 24, would you say that the gentleness of that particular believer is kind of a condition for God to grant repentance? I think that. He's saying that the meekness of the believer will have a softening effect on the unbeliever or the carnal believer to them to be open to changing their mind that God can grant them repentance and changing it. You know, it's one thing to think about it. It's another thing to do it. And the change of the mind can be empowered by God. So there's definitely a responsibility. On the part of the believer, absolutely. The servant should be meek now does that mean if you're not meek you're going to lose your salvation no but does it mean that the father may have to correct you could it be that there may be consequences when he puts you in a situation your meekness would and then you say no no i can't do it i hate that person can't do it god doesn't go for that at all and he's going to discipline his children uh and the best example of that, I think, in the scripture in one respect is is Jonah. Another is David. Where did David say, don't kill my son, kill me. I'm the one responsible. And he said, no, you're going to learn what I'm going to know. Your son's going to die. Abraham in the same way. So, let's go on. Paul continues with this metaphor, introducing the concept of entrapment. He uses the word snare. It's the Greek word... And it means a snare, a trap, or a noose. It usually involves some kind of inducement to enter in or to entangle yourself in the trap. We saw that when we studied David, right? Who did Satan use as the inducement? Bathsheba. And that's the way Satan does. Almost every trap. You know, I was quail hunting once with a friend named Robbie Campbell. And we came across the place, and his dog got in a snare. There was a rabbit's head on the inside of this kind of hole, and when he stuck his head in to get it, the snare got him. And, he's, and, it's, and you don't know what these dogs do. If he's there crying and screaming and trying to get out, other dogs start to attack him. I didn't understand it, Robbie had say, you keep those dogs away. That was my job. And he tries to unsnare that dog as he's still trying to reach in there and grab that meat. he finally gets him loose, sets him free over here, and then turns to catch another dog. What do you think that dog did? It went right back in there and got caught again. You say, that stupid dog. Democrat. Uh, I'd have to say, wait a second, that goes across party lines. We all do that. One after another, and we get burned, and then a little later, we do it again. And we've got to see that's what these people, these people that don't have Jesus, don't have the Holy Spirit in them, do they have any chance of not being, of getting out of that trap? None at all. Pardon me? So, I find
2: myself being very angry lately by reading the news.
1: Yes. I I live with a woman like that.
2: So, what you're saying. Is these, and it's obvious from what you're saying Nancy he is entrapped and all the other people. So,
1: and Bill Gates. Shouldn't that mean you shouldn't hate Bill Gates? No, you shouldn't hate him. But should, I, I want... should you oppose him? What does the verse say before? No,
2: but should he pay consequences?
1: Yes. But it's not your decision, it's the government's decision. That's the way the government, is, you are part of the government as... The government is of the people, we the people, by the people, et cetera. But, well, not anymore because of what's happened in the deep state. But be that as it may, yes, they should, if we have a vote on it, you should vote. He's a traitor. He should have the consequences. But that, does that mean you shouldn't love him? When God throws, let's assume Nancy Pelosi will never go, never invite Jesus into her heart. When she stands before the great white throne judgment and God throws her into the lake of fire, if you were to say, God, do you hate her? What would he say? No, I love her, but I have to, to be just. We, we ought to ask for mercy. That is that they be saved. That's the mercy. Our job is to warn about the snare. You're right. But our job is to share how they can get out of the snare because they're all in it. And that's what's so important. That's what we have to be. And we have to recognize that. It's almost like they're intoxicated with sin and they are are addicted to it. They think they're free. They're not. That's what they think, but they unfortunately are wrong. Now, we need to move forward here. Paul's directing Timothy, I think, to strive for to seek to deliver others from the slavery of sin into the freedom of Jesus Christ. Many non-believers would argue that, you know, they're free to do whatever they want. I've had people I've talked to who are addicted to alcohol say, I'm free, I'm not, I'm not enslaved. Yeah, they are. They just don't realize it. Sometimes it's something easy to see like alcoholism or gambling. Other times maybe not so much easy to see like materialism or addicted to fame Or sexual immorality. This is because they believe a lie. That's what's got to change. They've got to change their mind on this lie that they are believing. Let me ask you. Sometimes the strongest believers are those who lived in sin for a while before they became saved. Have you noticed that? How do you feel... When you realize someone you trusted has lied to you, how do you feel? Betrayed? Angry? You want to do something about it? Well, those people believed the lie longer than someone like me who became a believer when he was five. And they don't like it and they want to do something about it. Interesting how that works. And you begin to see the effects of it. That's why Paul instructs us to respond in meekness, gentleness, and kindness when exposing the lie. He doesn't say don't expose the lie, keep the truth from them, just, you know, to be easy on them. No, you expose the truth, but you do it with meekness and kindness. Now, two points I think that we want to remember. God is the one that grants the power of repentance to the believer. If we want to repent, really repent something in our life, we have to go to the Lord for the power to apply repentance in our life. And, you know, we have to understand repentance is not a one-time situation. It's something that involves consistency. You know, you may be able on your own to have the strength to repent for a five-minute period. But over days... And months, you don't. You will be weak. And, you know, Satan really doesn't attack you when you're strong. Usually he attacks you when you're weak and vulnerable. And he knows when that is. He probably knows you better than you know yourself. So he will grant us power to maintain that repentance, that change of mind. The second point I wanted to leave you with today, although the fall brought about a destructive and blinding effect on the human race. Salvation and a strong relationship with the master provides us with the ability to perceive reality. The people we've talked about before, you understand, they're living blind to the reality of what's going on here. We can know what's real. Now, before I pray, I want to say one thing. I'm going to ask you to pray for me as we're going to do a a short little series right within this about apostasy. And where does apostasy occur? In the church. We're going to try and understand what apostasy is. We're going to look at characteristics of apostasy that are in the scriptures and I'm going to pull throughout the whole books that I can. Let me give you an example. When was the first apostasy ever recorded in the scripture. Anybody know?
2: Wasn't that, uh, Paul was pointing
1: out, you know, when he talked about the rapture? I hate to say, Bonnie, you're way late. When is apostasy? Because what is apostasy? Let's understand it. It's, it's, it's departing from known truth. No, Eve was deceived. I, I think really the first time we ever came to it was Cain and Abel. God's plan that he made clear was, you know, Adam didn't say, I've got a new plan. I'm going to follow this plan, which means eating anything I want. No, but Cain said, I know that the plan is a blood sacrifice, but I'm starting a new deal. We're going to have sacrifice of the produce of the ground. And that's what I'm going to do. He left known truth and God had to deal with it. Apostasy. Let me give you another example. Moses is up on the mountain, he's getting the law, he's getting the the instructions to build the tabernacle, he's doing all these things, and then Joshua says, my master, I hear the sound of war going on down there in the camp, we've got to go back down immediately. And Moses says, Joshua, that's not the sound of war. What was the known truth? That God was their God He was the one who led them out of Egypt. He was the one who provided the passage in the Red Sea. He was the one who gave them water to drink. He was the one who gave them food to drink. He was the one who gave them direction. He was sitting there in the night as a pillar of fire and in the day as a pillar of cloud. And now they're down there worshiping a golden calf. And who led it? Aaron, the high priest. And what did that fool say to Moses when he came back and said, what are you doing? Well, the people brought me all this gold and they wanted me to build them. a God, I said, that's terrible. We can't do that. He had took all the gold. I threw it in the fire and out came this golden calf. Yeah. And he expected Moses to believe that. Let's pray before I get carried away. Father, I thank you so much for the time that we can spend today. And we're studying these examples that you've given us. Help us to see that we can't quit, that we're a part of the church Your bride, but we're also the slaves of the Father. And that we need to be obedient to Him. And we need to follow His direction. And He will give us the power to do that if we simply ask Him for it. Now, Father, I pray that You'll protect our church. That You'll keep apostasy away from it. I pray that Your people will be watchmen on the walls. Watching for false doctrine watching for these little things that can come in and we think, well, that's kind of innocent. Don't say anything. And then it grows and metastasizes. And then we're in apostasy. Help us, Father, to protect our church by being faithful watchmen and reporting what's going on. Now, Father, you know what's going on in our nation. If 80% of the people that inhabit our land are not believers. That means 280 to 250 million people are bound to hell right now. They need your mercy. They are in urgent need of your forgiveness. Help us as your servants to share your love and forgiveness faithfully and change our nation one person at a time pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.